Hello, you lovely lot. I wanted to take a moment to share an exciting announcement with you all. I will be doing a live show for Happy Mum, Happy Baby at the podcast show in London on the 22nd of May. This will be a live episode of this very podcast featuring me and a very special soon-to-be-announced guest. Get ready for a candid conversation, unfiltered truths, laughs, invaluable non-judgmental advice and lived experiences. Dive into the complexities of parenting while juggling work, relationships and personal growth and we'll be talking beyond the baby years. As well as the live episode, the show will also include a Q&A with both me and my guest. Tickets go on sale this Friday the 26th of April at 10am, but anyone who is part of the Happy Mum, Happy Baby newsletter will be getting early access to tickets on Wednesday the 24th of April at 10am. To sign up to the newsletter and for more information about the event, please head to happymumhappybaby.com forward slash events. I can't wait to see you there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of Happy Mum, Happy Baby, the podcast. Today's guest is an actress, a comedian, mother of three boys. Um, and I have been watching her on TV for as long as I can remember. It is the amazing, oh, and I should add, she's a documentary maker. That's very important. It's the amazing Sally Phillips. <laughs> hey, thank you. Hello, how are you? Yeah, all right. A tiny bit insane. How about you? Ah, <laughs> oh, I've got to say, so we're actually recording this on the first day of essentially it's the easing of the lockdown but it's not really there's just some new rules put into place that mean that you can still stand two meters away from people but only one person we're still basically indoors with our kids and it's crazy apart from can we go to garden centers yes you can if you want to buy some plants this afternoon sally that's where you're going yeah i want to go because we i did that thing with the kids where i was trying to we did lots of growing sunflowers yeah i've realized i need to get the uh the bamboo the yeah, sticks. the bamboo, yeah, the sticks. The stakes. Oh, is that what they're actually called? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So talking about the documentary going, that, the reason 
I've always wanted you on anyway, but then when I watched the documentary and saw the chaos of you with three boys, I was like, that's my home. And it is just loud and chaotic and you've just got to get involved. There's no way that you can just stand on the sidelines and just let it, yeah, you're involved. Yeah, I worked with somebody called Pippa Evans, who's a really brilliant um, comedian and singer. And she said her mother was an artist and she used to get old rolls of wallpaper out of the shed and fill all the potties with paint. And they would do, the kids would do bum prints down the, <laughs> down the wallpaper, <laughs> bunny hopping. And I was so taken by that. I thought, that's the kind of family I want. I want that kind of everyone a bit messy. But I didn't quite, I'm slightly too prudish to just do bum prints. But we, we got into this habit when it, we've sort of stopped it now. But for a long time, we used to do, um, they call it, the kids call it slidey painting. We get old, huge rolls of paper or cardboard out. And, you know, there's some um, tubes of paint from uh, the early learning centre. Yeah. And they would just throw paint at each other, throw paint at the, on the grass, throw paint on the, on, the, uh, on the paper, and then do whole body prints. And it's their, <laughs> it was their favourite, favourite thing. And at the beginning of the documentary, it was Luke's birthday. And so as a treat, we had, we had slidey painting, we had the paint out. So they had I love a that. Paint, right? Yeah. And the garden used to look cool, you know. Used to look like a some kind of Hindu religious ceremony, trees painted pink. <laughs> so yeah, so they just they've got and they've got sort of sensory needs. Ollie's Down syndrome meant that we've needed to do loads of hands-on, messy, messy play. So we were sort of in in for a penny, in for a pound. Once you've started rubbing your baby's feet in trays of gravel and uh, lots of you know that um, corn flour and water tracing. Yeah on baking trays lots you, you know it evolves from there I always find that for me my kids have never been the ones that sit down with a pen and paper and just do nice delicate stuff I look whenever we have gone out to restaurants in the past I just look over in such awe of the families who are sat just calmly doing that they need something actual actually to be doing it's a yeah, very different do. thing very very different there's a cushion there's an inflatable cushion with rubber spikes on it and I found they'd sit a little bit more cut. So it uh, gives them some sensory feedback. So if you've got a really wriggly child, yeah. you can sit them. It looks looks like something you'd find in the torture garden, <laughs> <laughs> apart from it's blue, not black. But <laughs> the kids, not that I've ever been to the torture garden, I do have to say, but I've seen pictures. It's <laughs> all going horribly wrong already. But, yeah, but it gives them a bit of sensory feedback. So they, they I find mine are more likely to sit still. It's like they sit stiller on a bouncy ball yeah just engaging their core a bit more mm. yeah Sally what was your childhood like my dad worked for British Airways and so we lived abroad and we moved country about every year and a half where did you live uh far east middle east I was born in Hong Kong then Zambia then Bandar Seri Begawan in Borneo and then Abu Dhabi Dubai, Dubai Bahrain Beirut um Rome Sydney and then back. So do you speak lots of different languages? At one stage, I spoke a few. I do lots of different accents. <laughs> we, were, no, we, were, we were revising for his son's um, French oral exam. And I said, Quand est ton anniversaire? I said, when's your birthday? And he went, my birthday is... <laughs> <laughs> I knew at that stage that we were not going to pass. <laughs> So, yeah, we all do a lot of accents, but not so many actual languages. <laughs> well, 
I think the accent thing is lots of fun. So I'd keep that. Um, So what was it like moving around a lot as a child? Yeah, well, I'm really grateful for it now. Um, it, It meant that our family was a real little unit. So, you know, friendships didn't continue, which was difficult because it's really hard to keep friendships up across continents mm. before you can write, for example, as a kid. And, you know, we didn't have, didn't have um, Zoom and Skype, obviously, then. So we got a very sort of um, strong family culture, and we're very close. And, um, and I, guess, I guess in some ways it was quite disruptive, and as an adult I've had to work through... Um, you know, I, d- I don't really know, didn't know for a long time how to repair relationships when they went wrong, because that's what you learn, isn't it? Where you grow up with the same group of people, you yeah. fall out and you forgive each other. <clears throat> but if if you're moving all the time, then if you fall out, you never see them again. And that's you don't really learn how to do that. So I've had to learn how to do that. But really, it was really enriching. I mean, I'm, now the world's got so much smaller. I feel really grateful to have to be it's called being a third culture kid when you're a child who's been brought up in neither of your parents' country of origin. And so there's a whole load of slight insanities that go with that. Mm. But at the same time, lots of um, lots of richness, you know. Lots, I mean, you know, cooking and things like that, lots of great family recipes that are basically Middle Eastern. And um, I find I sort of fit into lots of different environments very quickly. So then what I've had to learn is how to hang on to myself. So I learn how to completely adapt. And then you find a lot of actors are like this, that they um, they adapt very quickly. They can they can fake being part of a group very quickly. But you have to, it takes a while to work out exactly what it is you like. And, mm. you know, not to get too deep. <laughs> Did you ever think ahead to um, you as a mum and whether you wanted a family of your own? I didn't at all. It's really weird. I didn't, and I think that's partly to do with not having this um, community around you and being from a specific place. So I wasn't looking at other families thinking, oh, I want to be like that. I was just, you know, let's just keep afloat today. So yeah, I didn't imagine getting married and I didn't imagine having children. I didn't, I definitely wasn't Muriel from Muriel's wedding. Yeah, and I, and the Bowdoin catalogue leaves me cold. <laughs> Still now. <laughs> Still now. Still now, weirdly. But we used to come back to the UK every mm. summer for it. And my parents would try to make us British and we would have these British holidays. So we'd go to the Lake District and and we'd, you know, it was so exotic for us to go and sit on a, you know, us who were, uh, you know, going going to beaches in Africa and all the rest of it, to go to a, a British beach with stones on it <laughs> and have an ice cream, have a Mr. Whippy and sit on one of those, uh, what are they called? Ride-ons, you know, on the seafront. Yeah. And have rock, and go tadpoling. These are all because I guess I was still brought up with those books. So I was brought up with that very English childhood in literature. Yeah. And, and have kind of, I suppose, try try to do that a bit with my with my children, but I didn't mm. actually experience that myself. Yeah. So you didn't ever think about yourself as a mum, but at what point did you kind of go actually? that's what I'd quite like. And were were you already acting by that point as well? Because I imagine as an actor, it's quite difficult to sort of say, this is going really well, uh, but hold on a minute, I've got to make a little bit of time to have a child. Is that difficult kind of in your head working out if you can 
because I've got loads yeah. of friends who are actors and they find it really difficult to kind of go actually I'm going to I'm going to take this time. I, I I had I weirdly had in my head that 27 was the age when one got married and had kids. This is what happened. This is the third so time weird. I've heard this this week. Yep. <laughs> 20 have you heard that age? Yes, yeah. yeah really. It's so strange, isn't it? It's like 27 and then 27 came and went and I went into a bit of a panic. I was like, I'm officially on the shelf. This is a disaster. <laughs> and so then once I got married at 31, I and my husband definitely wanted a year without children, which is probably very wise. And then um, and they got, got cracking straight away. So I just, I had this sense that I needed to get on with it, mm. which is quite interesting because I had Ollie, who has Down syndrome. He was my first child. And then once I became a geriatric mother, my other two kids don't have Down syndrome. But I had, you know, I had my child with Down syndrome before I was a geriatric first mother, the first time. It's crazy. When do you become geriatric? Is it 35? 35, it's yeah. crazy, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So um, what was it like, the first pregnancy? The first time sort of going through all of that? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 don't, I just, I was really freaked out, is the truth. I, and I didn't enjoy being pregnant at all. I got really fat instantly. I got very anxious about work. My husband wasn't working at the time, and I got very anxious about supporting the family. And um, I think I thought people would employ you pregnant, but it turns out that they would rather have an actress wearing a fake bump than employ a real pregnant person mm. because of the insurance. And so... Um, I ended up doing these voiceovers for Summerfield. I've never really done any adverts before. Going So going in every week and going, boneless leg of pork, half price. <laughs> this week, box of quality street, half height, half price, bottle of Chardonnay. <laughs> As I got bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, I was pretty miserable um, pregnant. And I now realise, I think my body was, you know, trying to get the right nutrients for Ollie. Mm-hmm. And so at about five months, I went to see a nutritionist naturopath who put me on some super strong vitamins and that gave me my brain back to some extent. Um, and I think probably made a huge difference to Ollie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're only just starting to find out the impact you can have um, with nutritional treatments for babies with learning disabilities in the womb. So it, mm. it's just sort of a beginning area but I think I was pretty lucky with that and, and then Ollie didn't turn and that's quite common with kids with Down syndrome so they've got poor tone so then I tried to turn him have him turned which is the single most painful thing really I've heard not yeah. very nice things about that really not nice and it didn't and didn't work so then I ended up with a cesarean and um Ollie's Down syndrome wasn't diagnosed until 10 days after birth so it was a you know really happy time, those ten days, but quite worrying because he wasn't feeding and he was losing weight. And I was did the any, first did anyone up. did any of the doctors or nurses kind of pick up on anything? Or what, what, what? in retrospect, I think the midwives knew, but they mm. weren't allowed to tell you. Yeah, in retrospect, because we had a midwife in because I was in hospital four or five days, obviously after the C-section, and one of the midwives who was on at night was asking strange questions like um I remember staying up all night trying to feed Ollie from a cup express milk from a cup because he just wasn't mm. gaining weight and her saying have you got any Chinese ancestry 
and roaring with laughter. And then my husband saying, yes, we do, as a joke. (laughs) Which then confused her and us. And I think she was was sort of laying the ground for, you know, this baby looks a bit bit different. Mm. And the health visitors at home would come in and take him to the window and examine his feet. I now know they were doing the Down syndrome checks. They were <clears throat> examining the space between the big toe and the first toe because there can quite often be a bit of a sandal gap. Right. And um, then babies with Down syndrome. And then you have a, a single crease very often across the palm. Mm-hmm. And you can have brush field spots in the eye. I mean, not everybody with Down syndrome has these things, but you can have what are called brush field spots in the eyes, so little sort of flecks in the iris and I could in retrospect they were doing those checks but they didn't tell me they were doing those checks do you think they would do those checks on every baby anyway or do you think they suspected right no I think they suspected because he was very floppy Mm. so um babies with down syndrome quite often have very poor tones so he was hanging over my hand like a beanbag and that's very very common and um but I just I just didn't know I was a first-time mum and my brother had had a baby the year before and they used to do a sleep check which they called the floppy dometer so they'd pick up see how asleep emily was by picking up her arm and if it just dropped straight back down they knew she was probably asleep so the word floppy wasn't an alarm bell to me whereas now i know that when people are using the word floppy that's not good and mm. um, when medics are using the word floppy that's not good but for, for us it was just a cute word in our family were you, did you become more aware when you had your other two children? So when the next yeah. one came along, did yeah. you realise the difference there? Yes. Yeah. But actually, my brother had a second child three months after I had Ollie. Ah. And so that Christmas was so upsetting because we had these two babies next to each other on the bed. So his baby was born December the 8th. Ollie was August the 25th. And his baby could already do more at three weeks old than Ollie could at three months. So in terms of lifting his head and um, and things like that. So, so I could see that there was a massive difference. But my mother knew, I mean, she didn't know he had Down syndrome, but I remember my mother in the hospital going, he's not gripping. You know that thing they say that if you, you can hang a newborn baby off a washing line? Yeah. And Ollie didn't have any grip. And I just felt like, you know how you do with your mum? Oh, back off. <laughs> Nothing, nothing I do is ever good enough. And now she's finding something wrong with my baby. <laughs> it's weird, weird where your mind goes, isn't it? And I do think there is that thing, especially with a mum. I think if anyone else said it, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> if it's your mum, it does yeah. hit slightly differently. Yeah, you hear it completely differently, yeah. Yeah. So 10 days later, did, so did you have to go back into hospital because Ollie had lost weight? Yeah, then they rang up and they said... Um, they said, bring him back in. I said, actually, I've managed to get him to feed and I'd rather stay here. And they said, no, bring him back in. And I said, well, you know, can't you come here? They went, no, bring him back in. So they already knew, I think, the, the mm. health visitors knew. And they were cross with the doctors for not having spotted it. Because they'd, in, in retrospect, they'd asked for the doctors to come and see. But August is a time when in NHS hospitals, <clears throat> lots, lots of doctors, all the new doctors start. Right. And I'd had a bad operation, I had a bad C-section. So they'd called for the paediatrician to come and have a look at Ollie and she had refused. She had said, oh, 
while I was in the hospital, she had said, oh, worry is the mother, the baby's fine. <sighs> and I guess they were just busy and this person yeah. was new and... But they should never, you should never, ever ignore a midwife, I think. Well, they're just so experienced, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's it. So So how was the news delivered to you? Um, well, it was, as I say, it was over this 10 days of what's happening. Something. Did you know that they thought that or they suspected no, it at all? No, because I'd done the nuchal fold test, which was quite new at that time. Weirdly, I'd sat down, I'd lain down for the nuchal fold and I'd, I felt like I'd heard a voice, like an internal voice saying, your baby has Down syndrome. And I lay down, I was completely, I went totally cold. And then they did the measurements and they said, oh, it's fine. And I got given the one in 10,000 chance. Mm -hmm. And so then I regarded that as you would, one in 10,000, as a negative yeah. But of course, you forget there's still a one in the one in 10,000. And our little uh, pregnancy group were very unhelpfully saying, using that as a measure of how young you were. <laughs> so it might be 33, but if it was one in 10,000, that meant that you were biologically 25 or something. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, oh, I'm, you know, I mean, I'm incredibly young. <laughs> All those late nights didn't make any difference at all. <laughs> so, I, yeah, so it, it didn't really occur to me because I felt I'd had the... But I knew, I think I knew something was wrong by the end. I just had a feeling, you know, just a mother's hunch. And my obstetrician for the other two was incredibly experienced. And he said, mothers... His, in his experience, mothers know. And so in, in a really spooky way. And so Luke, my middle one, the moment I got pregnant, although all the stats were not good because I'd already had a child with Down syndrome and I was older, I, I just felt completely happy and I, I felt like I knew it was fine all the way through the pregnancy. And, and it was, and it, everything went swimmingly. And then the third one, I felt I didn't feel quite at peace. And he nearly died when he was born. He His first cry punctured a lung. And, yeah, it just wasn't straightforward. I didn't even know that could happen. Yeah. So, I, I mean, that's my experience. I mean, everyone's, everyone's story is different. But my, mm. and I'm, I'm in no way psychic or magic. You know, I'm just very, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who knows things are going to happen. I'm not that kind yeah. of person. Um, you're not gonna, you're not about to tell us when we're coming out of lockdown or anything like that. No, no, I can't. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've, I've got no no magic prophetic abilities, but I definitely with the pregnancies, the first one and the third one, I never felt quite at peace, and the middle one I felt absolutely fine, and that was the one that had no problems. So, um, yeah. So after they'd obviously been doing tests and stuff, how did how? they deliver that news? Sorry, yes, they. Um, so then we got called back into A&E and the doctor said, um, he said, I'm just going to run some tests. I'm going to run a test for Down syndrome. And uh, I said, what? He said, I'm sorry. And I went into shock. And the shock I went into was, you know, shaking, really shaking. And the actress part of me was going, this is so interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm flapping like I'm trying to do an impression of a goose trying to take off off a lake. Um, that's so strange. 
uh, next time I have to act someone in shock, I'll do this. And then thinking, no, actually, I won't do this because no one, no one would ever believe that this is what shock looks like. And then they had to take blood from my baby, which, you know, you've done the heel prick test, but getting a blood sample from a small, very small baby. And by this stage, he's only three pounds. Yeah. So he's gone down to three pounds from eight. And, um, you know, it's just very, very hard to get the blood out. And it's very um, traumatic procedure for him and for you. And, yeah, it was awful. And the midwife cried. and Not midwife, the nurse cried. And Did she cry because he was being tested for that or because Ollie well, was cried, clearly She cried, she said. She cried because we seemed like such a nice family. We weren't, of course. <laughs> we seemed like such a nice family. It was so, this was such an awful thing to happen to such nice people. Was basically what she said. Right. And um, you know, as you know, because you've seen the documentary, this is something. This is like a really unhelpful narrative mm-hmm. for families with children with Down syndrome because the way it tends to go is that it is a tremendous shock, and you do feel devastated for a bit. But everybody um, not only adjusts, but quite often feels their lives are more meaningful and happier for having the person with Down syndrome in it within a certain period, like within a year. Mm. And there's, you know, lots and lots of tests been, um, you know, academic research being done into that. And that is part of the story. And so I think it's, you know, um, presenting it as a big tragedy uh, stops parents bonding and also now we have su- such sophisticated prenatal tests within the termination window I think it's just really important that it's presented to parents as listen you are going to feel really bad and really frightened for a bit but um, it's vanishingly rare for people not to be delighted with their family member there's an amazing line that you said in the in the documentary that was, um, I was delivered a tragedy, but I got comedy. Yeah, that's definitely true. It's like living with a diva, like with a, <laughs> with a really comic celebrity. Yeah, it is. And, and most people would say that. I mean, of course, there's challenges. But um, I think most of the value, the meaning we get out of life comes from these areas in which we're challenged even if it's parenting I mean parenting alone any child is Mm. challenging it's just it's a slightly different type of parenting you're doing the whole thing on slightly different scales Mm. Um, and of course there's you know there's more worries but there are I think um, having Ollie has made me live in the present a lot more and that's something I mean we were laughing in in the disability community about mindfulness these mindful coloring books because we really don't need them because we we are we're forced to go slow you're forced to go slightly slower and you can see that's a terrible tragedy or as the route to enjoying life mm. having a meaningful and happy life and i think a lot of mums with special needs kids discover superpowers so really discover a, a you know a purpose for existing that they hadn't previously had mm. there's some amazing and some of the most amazing people I know at all are within our community. I mean, I've, I've made such good friends. Amazing women who say, 
you know, they've just really, you know, rolled their sleeves up and, and got on with it. And, uh, you know, have been it's like they've been set a mission for their life, which is mm. to make life better for people with disabilities and for other families with disabilities and to show people how to do it and share resources and fight injustice. Before discovering all, the, all that joy that, that comes alongside and that community, did you leave the hospital feeling lost, lonely, isolated? Did you feel like... Well, the world had shifted a bit. Yeah, I think my honest, my honest first response was, it's a fair cop, Gov. You know, I've had such a blessed life where, you know, I've got a family that love each other, that have had this incredibly privileged upbringing, seeing all these different countries. I've had an amazing education. I've got a job that I love. Um, I live in a nice house. At some point, something had to happen you know, to make me one of humanity. <laughs> uh, and uh, and if it's this, that's great. Uh, let's let's deal with this. But I definitely thought of it as being a very bad, a bad thing that I was going to deal with all right. And the health worries, and I think there's two different things. One is the learning disability and just being on a slightly different graph. But the thing that was really difficult and terrifying was the the health stuff. I mean, the that that's the downside of Down syndrome is that you there's slightly more suspicion that you'll have heart problems and and hearing problems and sight problems and all of that. That the thyroid won't work. And um, <clears throat> my fears in the first year. I mean, all the all the airways on a newborn baby are very small anyway, and they're even smaller in a baby with Down syndrome. And so we were in and out of hospital a lot in that first year with um, bronchiolitis and breathing problems, feeding problems. And uh, yeah, I did. I felt very, very isolated. And, um, you know, new new baby groups were awful because everybody else's baby could sit up and yours couldn't sit up. And everyone was being trying to be kind to you. And you didn't want them to be kind. You just wanted, I wanted to be complaining about my baby being into things. My baby couldn't move and my baby couldn't, you know, didn't, didn't babble. Um, didn't know if he could hear me. Um, that was, you know, that, that I used to go, I used to sing, go compare, go compare for the weighing and measuring thing. I used to hate that clinic. You know, my baby would like it be like a sack of potatoes on the floor, and everyone else's baby was um, building with blocks. W- one saving grace for me was, um, well, there were a couple of saving graces, but one of them was Nina Conti um, had a baby at that same time. She's a comedian, a ventriloquist, and she just lived around the corner. Right. We were both doing a radio show together. We were doing the first series of show called Claire in the Community. And we used to go down together. And I hadn't told, she knew that I had Ollie and that he had Down syndrome, but nobody else knew. Um, But we were both expressing in the dressing room. And uh, I think everyone else on that thought I was incredibly unfriendly because I just came in. I didn't really talk to anybody except Nina. Um, But yeah, it was, it was isolating and strange. But the, the upside of that, as anyone who's, 
ever grieved anything knows is that we had my dad called it a visa system so we had a visa system for the house so only a very small select group of people were allowed in I say house it was a top floor flat and um but we had such a laugh yeah it's a bit like a wake or something you know there, there were people who came around and they everyone you know that those four people had keys and could stay over whenever and it's that interesting thing about awake isn't it because you imagine it's going to be something really sad but there's so much joy and laughter in that is it is there was there ever a sense of I guess not grieving because at that point you didn't know what it was going to be like and how much joy because the narrative had always been bad and a negative one was there a sense of grieving what you didn't think you would get yeah definitely I mean I you know I I am a, a girly spot in that I love studying and I always did well in exams and went to Oxford and privately, I mean, I would never have admitted this. I had intended to hothouse my child. <laughs> I had fully intended to get the child Suzuki violining, speaking Mandarin <laughs> Um, I wasn't going to admit to that to anyone, but I had already, I already had the house full of baby Einstein stuff. I already right. had the, and um, I remember looking at, just looking at this brightly coloured, you know, acid coloured play mat and feeling completely heartbroken and just thinking, God, I could make me cry even now, just thinking, gosh, what was the point of that? There was no point of that. And then slowly realising that actually I did need that, whereas a child, a very smart child wouldn't have needed that. <laughs> but actually I did need, I needed to be stimulating Ollie in a way that the other child wouldn't have needed. Mm. Um, but yeah, it was, it was very isolating. Um, but I don't, I also don't think it's particularly helpful I think the, it's so interesting how these narratives are really shape the way we interact with our child. Yeah. And there's a very strong grieving the death of the child you didn't have narrative. And I, I don't know that that is, I don't know that that's that helpful either because it yeah. isn't a death and you have got a little baby there that needs your attention. And it was that baby that you knew in the womb. It was that yeah. baby that you were feeling kick. Yeah. Um, you know. I just wonder if hearing that from you, so if anyone was listening who's going through something similar, because I, I imagine that not knowing how you get to a place where you do absolutely fall in love and not fall in love, but kind of accept where you are and absolutely love where you are, so the bridging that gap and that well, taking that step, I imagine every part is, it, it kind of everything evolves. And because there is that narrative that you do so beautifully, do everything you can to kind of get rid of, get rid of that narrative or not get rid of it, but kind of show everything in a very different light. And you show the joy, you show the love, you show the magic. And but I think, I think it is difficult. Um, and I think we are the cowpole generation where we expect not to feel any pain. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, quite apart from whether you decide someone decides to go ahead with the Down syndrome pregnancy or not, I think that that is really the route to A, joy and B, meaning. You know, 
uh, overcome, you know, running a marathon is more painful than ambling to the chip shop. <laughs> so which one is going to give you a sense of meaning and achievement and long-term health? Mm. Um, so I think it's a bit like that. It is harder. I don't want to pretend it isn't. I don't want to pretend it isn't hard. Yeah. Because because it is sometimes, but it's immense. You know, I'm really grateful for the ways in which um, Ollie, all, all the things Ollie's taught me, and the ways in which I've had to grow. He, I feel like he's made me live the life I intended to live when I was 18, but wouldn't have. Because life got in the way. Yeah, but also I think I would have just pushed my child towards Suzuki violin and I would have had these expectations. I mean, because I can't get him, it's like trying to blow a boulder up a hill. I just can't get him to be anything other than himself. And so he's made me a better parent for the other two because I know I just have to, um, you know, I'm, I know I'm just the ground in which they grow as opposed to them at all in any way you just have to there's this thing they teach you when you're teaching your child to talk which is a painful process owling observe wait and listen but you literally you're not allowed to speak you just have to watch them and wait for them to talk and for them to lead and then you join in and you know I don't do that most of the time but I do remember to do it sometimes and I think that's really that kind of attention is really beneficial for both the others. Mm. I'm sounding like I think I'm a successful parent. I'm a, I'm a <laughs> terrible failure of a parent. I fail every day a thousand times. I usually go off phone calls when, like this when it's me doing all the talking. And I'm I, not that I ever paint that I'm a perfect mum because I always say that I'm not. And then I come go downstairs and it's absolute chaos. And I just feel so far removed from whatever has just nicely been spoken about upstairs. Yeah, exactly. I think something, you know what? I, you know what I wish someone had said to me when I was at the beginning of the parenting journey was that all of these strategies are time limited. Because it's so depressing. You implement the pastor in a jar behavior reward system <laughs> and that only works for six weeks then you go well I want to jump off a cliff because that was so painful to implement and it's only lasted six weeks but all of these things only last a very short time so true so we have a star jar and I'm just like when I whenever I whip that out I'm like we are I'm on it and this is game changer life is good and then all of a sudden no one listens no one cares it's a star in a jar who cares yeah, exactly. And and you need to know that that is, that's how it is. Yeah. These things, they, the kids change constantly and they get bored very quickly. And all these things only last for a few weeks. So don't bother buying any of the books. I'm sorry if you've got one out, but don't really don't bother with the books because whatever you read in the book, that'll only last a few weeks. Yeah. Luckily, I don't do advice books. I do yeah. hand up. I'm really rubbish at this. You know, this is all yeah. my honest account books, not on it, not on yeah, advice. Yeah, those books. Those books are really, I mean, they just make you feel bad, don't they? They do, because they tell you that a one size fits all. Because I think it's all about your relationship with your child and learning to become the, the expert. I think we as parents need to reclaim the expert badge. Like My Contented Little Baby or whatever that was called. That <laughs> book, that is, that's just a very damaging book to give to a new mother. I mean... <laughs> I, I just think the idea that you should get up at 6.30, express 50 mils from your right boob, <laughs> sterilise everything, 
make your own breakfast, wipe down all the surfaces with Milton, make your bed, have a bath, wake baby. I remember holding the book in one hand <laughs> and this practically purple, you know, this blackberry, human blackberry screaming. And it said, settle the drowsy baby. <laughs> throwing, <laughs> throwing the book across the room. Really, it's up to you. It's up to you. You can read the baby. The baby can read you. The baby needs you, not a manual. I love it. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. What's the, the age gap between your three? Um, three years and then five years. So eight from top to bottom. So what has it been like bringing more chaos into the fold? Every, I think, well, a friend of mine, this is not my words, a friend of mine who has four kids said to me that every time it's like you build a tower of wooden blocks and then you think that the next baby's going to fit in, but the next baby knocks it down. You have to start from scratch every single time. So you have to work out all your, you have to have a different pasta jar, start, start. <laughs> all the family routines, they all, uh, they all start again with every new baby. Mm. So, yeah, it's, I mean... It is. I became weirdly obsessed, and I think you do find this sometimes in families with kids with special needs, that I, I really uh, wanted Ollie to have two siblings. I thought either we have just Ollie and I pour all my 
attention into him with all these early interventions and teaching him and to get him as far along as we can or he has to have two siblings because I don't want to leave one sibling as a carer I want them to have <clears throat> have each other to talk about if I'm not here and their dad isn't here so and then, and then I just kept miscarrying so I had you know just found it really really hard to have those babies um but again it's just made me very grateful so I suppose rather than feeling down about there being chaos I was just very grateful that we'd finally managed to to get the two siblings to get the family of three and what has it been like having them all grow up growing up together well it's different every six months do you find this yes yeah so I mean you know you, you have these sort of mental photographs I mean at the beginning, it was fantastic with Ollie and Luke. Was we were two and three quarter years between them because they used to do um, speech therapy together. So um, Luke was about ten months old and already talking. This weird talking baby, like one of those media uh, videos, one of those adverts that goes around. And yeah, they were they were such good friends for a really long time, probably until. Luke was about in year three, and so Ollie would have been year five or six, and then the gap yeah. started to. Well, they just started to get different. Um, I think I think it, it is hard hard for the siblings to process, um, because they don't see Ollie as any different from them at all, mm. uh, and that's that's the magical thing. They don't, and so I'm making different. I'm differentiating. Um, discipline expectations and Luke's going this is completely unfair. <laughs> why are you expecting me to do this and not him um, and so we started to get more arguments then and they dealt differently with the new baby and now Ollie and Tom play really nicely together and I think Luke's found the transition from being the middle one to essentially being the older one much harder than I ever imagined that's interesting um, yeah, I think, but we, we don't know how, you know, birth order is so important, isn't it, to our identity? Mm. And that's something that's a bit, it's a bit confused for Luke. I always think second child, middle child, I, I always think it's a really difficult role anyway, because you're not the oldest, you're not the youngest. So you kind of, you kind of, I don't know, float along, well, not float along, but you're kind of struggling to work out what your role is. And I imagine being pushed into, then you definitely have a role. This is the new role. You're kind of like the the leader, if you like. It must be a bit like, whoa, this isn't what I, I signed up for. I'm middle child. I'm meant to be difficult and middle. And now I've got to be, you know, responsible. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think um, I've had to... Or, or I've been aware that he really, um, we've got, I'm, you know, as I said, close to my brothers. And um, so he's got a cousin, the cousin who was born in December, that, you know, that Christmas I was yeah. talking about. So Charlie is pretty much the same age as Ollie. And he performs that big brother role for Luke. Aww. So we've got, so... So that's the thing, you know, we we um, we are very, the, the cousins are all incredibly close. And I don't think, although my brothers and I are close, I don't think the cousins would be as close as they are if um, we hadn't had Ollie. Mm. Because um, I started doing family holidays for the cousins um, 
years ago, we used to go to, there used to be a Down syndrome camp, speech and language and riding camp down in Kent. So I used to rent a big house and all the cousins would come and stay because my brother and sisters and all were working. So the cousins yeah. would all come down and we'd go and drop Ollie off and then we'd do castles. <laughs> so it was the castles holiday. And they started doing that when they were quite young. And now we have, we still have one or two family holidays all together every year, go and rent a big house and they hang out. But it all, that all came from Ollie's, Ollie's speech and language camp. How do you talk about, well, do you talk about Ollie's um, Down syndrome? To, do you talk about it a lot? Yeah, we Not do. a lot, but be, like being aware of it. Yeah, we talk about it. We talk about it all the time. <laughs> yeah, we talk about it all the time. Um, and and I, th- I think that is partly because we did the documentary. But I, I think, I, mean, I don't know if I made the right decision or not. I mean, it's a, it's a difficult thing to know mm. what the right thing to do is. I mean, some families don't talk about it. And, and, you know, I, I think I'm probably the young, I, I spoke about it earlier than most of the other families we know. Um, but it was quite funny, my initial attempts. So I'm saying to Luke, the thing is, Ollie her, Ollie's very special. And he went, Mum, am I special? And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are very special. So it's like, okay, we'll, we'll park that for now. And we'll, we'll, do, we'll do this another time. And then I went, Ollie has something called Down syndrome. And Luke said, and do I have up syndrome? <laughs> because he just, he just wouldn't, wouldn't understand Ollie as being in a different category to himself. And I think yeah. I came to realise that he had the right view and I had the wrong one. That Ollie's, you know, we're all just human beings and we've all got different characteristics. Mm. Um, and the only thing that the Down syndrome label is useful for, really, is, you know, I suppose you know, testing before birth, if you think that's important. I mean, I personally am not a big fan of it, as you'll have gathered. Um, and getting uh, the right education. But even getting the right education, to to really deliver the education that Ollie needs, you need to look at, uh, look at Ollie as an individual, as opposed to someone with a label. So really, it's just about unlocking the cash. So having the label means it's a bit easier to fill in the forms. Well, and that makes total sense as well, because every child is different. Mm. Yeah. So every child without Down syndrome would have different, you know, needs. So, you know, it's it's no different. And I think, you know, the way a lot of parenting is counterintuitive, like if you're Mm. really angry, speak very quietly. (laughs) And um, uh, I think it's a bit the same with education, that people are worried when they're... um, you know, if there's kids with disabilities in their class that their child won't get attention. But actually, the child with a disability comes with a support, which means that and their support shouldn't be on them all the time. So what it means is you end up, particularly in primary school, with an extra adult teaching in your child's class. Mm. So Ollie's class all the way through primary school, there was Ollie, there was the teacher, the TA, and then Ollie's LSA. And there were a lot of kids who weren't getting, you know, who didn't have a label that unlocked support in the way that Ollie did, who benefited from Ollie's LSA. And I can think of at least two that, 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 that the local authority hadn't signed off for them to have support, but who then went into speech and language groups with Ollie and got the special attention that they wouldn't otherwise have got. So it can be a massive um, plus. Mm 
for a class to have a child with um, a known disability in there who comes with a care package. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't, that, I, that wouldn't even occur to me, I don't think, that yeah. there was any... It's, it's amazing. There's, I mean, parents in our community who've had mums come up to them at the school gate and going, why isn't your child in special school? Your child shouldn't be here writing letters. And there's, some people are kind and some people are really not kind. Yeah. Um, but when you, you take, you know, quite apart from the thing of, you know, let's be... Let's be nice human beings. Even if you're just being incredibly mercenary about it, it is a, um, you know, it can be a real plus. Mm. Just like it looks like it's going to be a bad thing for our family that we have this child with a disability, but actually it's bonded our family. Um, we've done some really amazing things that we wouldn't have done if we didn't have Ollie. Yeah. We've learned things we'd never know. My kids have you know, had difficulties they wouldn't otherwise have had, but it's also given them, they've overcome them and it's given them resilience and I'm doing a sales pitch now. <laughs> I'm doing a Down syndrome sales pitch, which I, I don't mean to do. It's just, I think the things that we, I, I suppose the only point I want to make is that the things we think of as being specifically bad have ended up, you know, although being challenging, bringing with them specific benefits that you wouldn't have thought of beforehand. I, I listened to um, uh, you on another podcast, actually, and you were saying how um, the boys will kind of come together and almost make Ollie play up sometimes, like exaggerate. Yeah, Ollie does. Ollie pretends to be more disabled to make people laugh on the bus. It's awful. <laughs> I'm going, Ollie, stop it. And everyone's looking at me like, oh, she's, such, she's so mean. <laughs> I'm going, Ollie, behave normally. And they're going, he's got Down syndrome. Can't you see? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Dear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And is has there ever been that feeling of and I wonder for the boys as well of people staring or looking or anything like that? Yeah, definitely there has, but it's hard to prize it apart because uh, people stare at me anyway. That's true. Yeah, but yeah, people people have stared. But I mean everyone's had that, haven't they? Their kid melting down in the supermarket. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But I think what, what happens now is that Ollie's, Ollie's just so social and he's desperate to bond with people. And he, at the moment, he's desperate to bond with alpha males. So every man we meet, he asks them what football team they support. <laughs> and what's interesting is you go, oh, that's why they all support me. He gives you real insight into being a bloke. Um, and you can, he can actually, although he can't have complicated conversations most of the time, he can have a really, he goes on the Chelsea fan app and he types his opinion about every game and he's typing in the same level of language as everybody else. And I think that must be because Chelsea must have a lot of foreign supporters who don't speak right. very well. But he fits right in. I mean, it's absolutely, I don't know what that's saying about Chelsea fans. No one else in the family supports <laughs> Chelsea, by the way. That's <laughs> Just out of nowhere. How did Ollie start supporting Chelsea? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Yeah. That's so funny. After being told so many things that Ollie wouldn't do, he wouldn't be able to do, is it absolutely amazing? Like, well, I'm putting those words into your mouth. What is it like seeing Ollie 
surpass all those things or just kind of do those things that you were told that he might not be able to do? Well, you go through phases, like with every child. So at the moment, I am going through a phase of being very worried about Ollie and being very worried about the things he can't do because he's mm. about to leave school. And, um, you know, but uh, in year six, last year in primary school, he was in the top 10% of people with Down syndrome, the things he was achieving. And he looked like, he really looked like he was going to be the first generation who were living independently and working a job and but but secondary has been a car crash for us i think it's a, a sadly common experience and um and we're i just feel like i'm looking at a very different child to the one i was in year six um, but hopefully you know swings and roundabouts yeah. hopefully he'll um because i hated secondary school as well hopefully college and the next level will be kinder to us I imagine it's a big shift as well being the oldest in the school to suddenly the youngest you know it's it's everything is new again there is I think secondary is a shock for all children mm. um but uh schools just don't have the training um and it, it's not really it's not even um I mean obviously they need resources but really it's attitude as much as anything so one of the big things is um, teachers get obsessed with the gap between their child with Down syndrome and the rest of the class. But the gap is completely irrelevant. It's just, is everybody learning? And you can, without too much difficulty, create activities that everyone at every level can do. Um, but they don't have the training on how to do that. And so they think they can't. And they end up, once the self-pity creeps in of, I shouldn't be having to do this, this child should just be in a special school, then um, then it's a bit of a disaster. And kids with Down syndrome do... So they did this um, study not, uh, quite recently in Holland <clears throat> where they found that... So your average um, IQ with Down syndrome is around 50. And... Um, they found that kids with an IQ of between 50 and 100 who went to special school at the end of that period performed worse in maths and literacy tests than kids with an IQ of under 50 who'd gone to mainstream. Um, so that's really, really interesting. So mm. that shows how much our children learn from their peer group. And so I really tried to get Ollie in mainstream and, um, you know, the first school didn't have, they, they got rid of their Senko and didn't replace her. And then the second school, there was a clash between the SEN department and the um, deputy head, you know, discipline, mm. because Ollie just has no fear and has to be given a very good reason why he should do anything. Right. Yeah, so so it failed and he ended up in, in special. And so we ended up with three school changes and it's just been catastrophic in terms of learning. Mm. Yeah. I must remember to celebrate Ollie's achievements in the way I did when he was smaller. But um, it has been a bit of a tough few years um, in terms of expectations because I got so excited because the trajectory was up, 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 up. Yeah. And then it's been tough. You know, I feel like I've been interacting with parenting like a plough interacts with a field 
you know, <laughs> from knock after knock after knock. Um, but that's part of the job too, isn't it? And you don't love your kids any less when things are hard. In fact, you love them more. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of makes you fight for them even more, I think, when you're putting those yeah. situations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one of the books I wrote uh, recently that is on motherhood was a series of letters on motherhood. So it was letters to my husband, to the boys, to my phone, to my foof, my boobs, like all various parts of me that contributed to motherhood. Um, and uh, so I wondered if you could write a letter on motherhood, who would it be to and what would it say? I would write a letter to a mum who's just had a baby with Down syndrome and didn't know, or who's trying to decide whether to keep the baby. Because I was written a letter by somebody when I had Ollie, somebody I didn't know, who she just told me about her daughter. And it made all the difference in the world. Just it took so much fear away. She described this, her daughter, Domenica, at that age was eight or nine. And she just described her really beautifully. She said, you know, Domenica, you know, she just told us about her journey, you know. Um, Domenica loves the Simpsons. And I just remember reading, oh, she loves the Simpsons. Oh, she's got a great sense of humour. Oh, it's going to be okay. The idea that I wasn't going to have this vegetable, I was going to have a child that had favourite TV shows and interacted had favorite foods and went to school and and so I would write I would write a letter to somebody who just had the diagnosis saying you know diagnosis is is the worst bit and here are some of the things I would make it very you know very specific very specifically funny (laughs) Ollie the other you know lockdown Ollie hasn't really understood lockdown and um, he turned up at a neighbour's house in his pants asking them to take the bunting down from outside our house because it irritated him and he knew I wouldn't. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's really embarrassing, but it is also kind of, it's also, we've got nice neighbours, it's also kind of funny. We have disco breakfasts. Um, Ollie loves Elton John. Um <laughs> I don't know, I'd just write that kind of thing, I guess. Ollie's favourite food, what happens when Ollie cooks. Ollie's, Ollie's jokes, Ollie's sense of humour. I mean, they're, they're jokes that just, they're things like, what's a fisherman's name? Dave. <laughs> what? <laughs> it's a joke that's only funny because Ollie... <laughs> it's not funny. Yeah. It's not funny. Like, if, but what? It's... And when people patronise him... We went to we went to a hospital. We had a a check for something, and I took him for ice cream afterwards. And we went into this restaurant near Tommy's at Waterloo, an Italian restaurant. And the waiter was trying to be kind, but he was being really patronising. He's like, "Oh, you like ice cream? What you like?" And Ollie sort of looked at him, and he would never have realised. It was not unless you know Ollie that Ollie was winding him up but um he said what's your name and then ollie looked up with one eye and said jeff (laughs) (laughs) jeff what ice cream you like a jeff (laughs) and 
I don't know. It's just funny, really, really funny. But he, you know, he's much more emotionally wise than people would realise. And yeah, so I'd, I'd write that kind of thing. Um, but uh, a letter to take away fear. Yeah. And to just sketch out a bit, because what happens is you get given this awful piece of what I think is awful piece of writing. I, I got sent it about ten times, and it's something like. You're supposed to go on holiday to Italy. You've wanted to go to Italy your whole life. You can't wait to taste the pizza and eat the ice cream. Um, but at the last minute, your plane is um, diverted and you have to go to Holland. And you're really cross because you've always wanted to go to Italy. But after a while, a bit, for some reason, you're not allowed to leave Holland. Right. You're just there. <laughs> you're just stuck in Holland forever. <laughs> um, and you realise that Holland does have things to recommend it. They're not as obvious, but they're... You know, this is this piece of writing you get given. It just winds me up. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, I don't think it helps. So, yes, yeah, so I would write a letter to somebody saying, don't panic. It's going to be okay. Hold on tight. Yeah. Hold on tight. The grieving bit is awful, but I promise you come out of it. And 99.8% of people who come out the other side uh, are delighted with their family member with Down syndrome. And wouldn't change them for the world. The last few years, I've been um, really aware of the wouldn't change a thing campaign. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're great, those people. Yeah. Just so wonderful to see. I think because I've never, it's never been on my radar. I don't really know anything. All I guess for a long time, what I'd, all I'd seen is that not that I believed in it or anything, is that negative um, storyline and I think actually years before that, sort of being out and seeing different families and seeing that joy, actually seeing it, and then the Wouldn't Change a Thing campaign sort of really sealed it for me. Mm. Kind of like, yeah, you can see that joy. You can see that connection between the different families. And I think it is, it's people like you and, and those families sort of saying, look, this is us and, and we are more than happy. And I think it is, you know, it's obviously every woman's choice. And you, I, you know, I don't think you should force people to have babies they don't want. Yeah, it takes a courageous person to, to choose it. And now you're going to be required to choose it. So I didn't know I was having Ollie. And most of my cohort didn't know they were having, they may have done the test, but the tests weren't as accurate. Now the tests, now every pregnant woman is going to be required to become a bioethicist. You have to just, you're going to be given all these choices. I mean, you can sequence the unborn baby's genome from the tests that we currently do. So you're going to know, in the future, we're going to know, you're going to be able to see how Italian your your fetus is. Right. Like, oh, this one is 64%, you know, has 64% of my dad's genes and this one has fewer. Oh my. And the, a guy I spoke to in the States was saying he was really happy. He had sequenced his unborn, unborn child's genome and got into trouble for it, but you won't soon. That he was really pleased his kids were 55% related because he and his brother were only 38% related and they didn't get on. Right. So there's all kinds of choices on the horizon. And the reality is that there's very few people, I think, who are going to choose to have a child with a disability. And so our community is very possibly uh, going to disappear. And there's a wonderful culture 
that comes with people with Down syndrome, which you can see, you know, we see Andrew on The Greatest Dancer mm -hmm. or, or Sarah Gordy acting in The A Word or The Wouldn't Change a Thing campaign. There's a load of uh, positives to having Down syndrome, a load of wisdoms about being a human being and a load of huge bonds and blessings for families that are going to go. I suppose we, we feel a responsibility to tell people what our experience is so that if someone's inclined to make that step into the unknown, they know that there are plenty, plenty sunny days ahead. I think it's wonderful. Honestly, Thanks. I think it's so I'm wonderful. So, mean, so do. meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> You'd have seen me screaming at him the other day. <laughs> you mean that still happens? <laughs> Oh dear. I keep telling myself that as they get older, I'm going to have to be screaming less. But no, no. Well, puberty is a magical time. Of course. Oh my gosh. Yeah, puberty. And of course, that coincides with perimenopause for most of us who are having babies later. Yeah. So your hormones are going crazy, their hormones are going crazy. And um, that's an entirely new box of treats. Amazing. <laughs> On the horizon. <laughs> ah! <laughs> so we end every podcast with you completing three sentences. So the first one is being a mum means. Being a mum means seeing your child uh, wearing your Malone Soulier shoes uh, with a Veruca <laughs> <laughs> and, and going, oh, well. <laughs> never mind <laughs> um since having children i uh have got an entirely new value system so i think my kids have broken every single thing i treasured yeah um but i now treasure entirely different things um that are of no monetary value to anyone ex except me yeah yeah I've got to say, those two kind of tie together. And I um, I definitely feel like, even even now in lockdown, I'm like, yeah, we can play with that. Like, no, there's no, you know, yeah. What, what's the point? We can, we can absolutely, that's going to bring you joy for a day. And that is per, five minutes. <laughs> and, that, and that piece is worth it. Um, and the final one is, I'm happy when? I'm happy when, well, I'm happy lots of the time. But I'm really extremely ha family happy when we're sitting around a table, having a meal together and having a conversation, which we can do now, listening to each other and making each other laugh, telling each other jokes. It kind of comes with the territory of being around a table. I love, I think, and I, I, I don't know whether it's a boy thing or whether it's a children, just put them at the, at the table with food Suddenly, everyone's that little bit more relaxed. Words start tumbling out. Yeah, I love that. And I also love bedtime chats. when you. I find boys talk to you when you're not looking at them. So lying next to them in bed and just chatting, tickling their arms or whatever, that, those yeah. chats are really precious. And I've just instituted or re-instituted. I screamed the other day, I'm rebooting this family. I'm turning it off and turning it on again, trying to... <laughs> trying to return to factory settings and so we re, i reinstituted washing up club our dishwasher broke in lockdown which is great 
Um, so we did washing up, washing up club. And although there was a lot of fighting the first time, the chats we had, we, and it came from none of my friends have to do any housework. None of, and you know, talking about being an adult and how it's so important to be able to wash up and manage your own, you know, sail your own boat. And um, that was, I don't know, it's so weird, isn't it? That's what I mean about a different value system. That felt like, I, I mean, I felt, I felt on top of the world. So we've got them contributing, doing chores, having a conversation about moral values and being your own person and the kind of house, you know, talking about their futures yeah. as adults. I just, I felt so ridiculously happy. I can't tell you. Mm. Sally, thank you so much for coming on. So nice to chat to you. Lovely to chat to you. Thank you. No worries. Take care.